Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Rabbi Francis Nataf, and you're listening to the episode entitled The Patriarch That Became an Axe Murderer. Well, you might ask, what patriarch would that be? You thought you knew all three of them, right? Avraham, well, he's not an axe murderer. Well, you know, the business with Isaac was a little dicey, but uh, still, it would be a little going a little overboard to call him an axe murderer. Isaac, certainly we can't think of anything like that. And Jacob's not an axe murderer either. So who's left to be an axe murderer? Well, we have to redefine our definition of patriarchs. Uh, the Midrash in a uh, rather unknown Midrash in a book called Shir Hashirim Zuta. Uh, some of you have heard of Shir Hashirim Rabbah, which means the great Shir Hashirim or the great Midrash on Shir Hashirim. Shir Hashirim Zuta actually means the small Midrash on Shir Hashirim. In any case, uh, this does not have to do with Shir Hashirim, but over there it says that Esav was on the same level as Yaakov. However, he ended up going off the path, what we call off the derech today. It's not the exact language that the Midrash uses, but that's essentially what it's saying. Esav was intended to be a patriarch. And I speak about that in this week's Tvar Torah, which you can get at the Jewish Press. You can get it delivered into your email box if you sign up and so on and so forth. In any case, Esav was meant to be a patriarch. However, he did not uh, meet the grade in order to become one of the four patriarchs. Incidentally, I note in my Tvar Torah that uh, just like there are four matriarchs, so too there should have been four patriarchs. Okay, so so much for the patriarch. What about the axe murder? So some of you are familiar with the comments of Rashi on the beginning of, not this week's Parsha, but when we first get introduced to Esau, his coming home to uh, his brother Jacob, as as, uh, it would be, to Yaakov. And he's very hungry. He's so hungry that he is willing to pay any price for the porridge that, or the lentils, or the food that that Yaakov is preparing. Hungry and tired, uh, tired, says Rashi, is a euphemism there for uh, having committed murder. So whether you used an axe or not, I'm not sure, but certainly uh, the type of tools that were used for murder back then could well be considered uh, axes and swords and things of uh, that gruesome nature. On the other hand, question is whether Rashi really means that literally. Several other Midrashim and other comments that we're going to speak about today seem to indicate that that part is perhaps not meant to be literal. So we have a patriarch that has gone off the derech, that is doing things, if he's not committing murder, uh, he's doing things that are problematic, that are wrong that are bad enough that the 
Midrash can compare it to murder. By the way, it compares other, it, it, it speaks about other grievous sins that Esav does, both in action and in theory. It's very interesting that Esav is accused also of leaving the cardinal principles of the Jewish faith as they might have been before the Torah was given. In any case, the the question is who's responsible for Esav's sorry situation? Who's going to bear the burden? Who's going to be blamed for it? Who's going to be punished for it? Well, certainly Esav himself, because as anybody else, he has free choice. A person uh, has the benefit of having a free choice, but that comes along with responsibility. You take responsibility for your actions. You take responsibility for your life choices. However, the Jewish sources don't leave it at that. We'll get back to the Midrashim in a minute, but essentially there are three points of time where Jewish sources, traditional sources, indicate that Esav is not the only one to blame for his situation, but uh, those around him, the good people around him, are responsible either for uh, allowing this to happen or not doing anything or enough to turn the situation around. So before we get to the Midrashim, there's a famous statement of Rav Shimshon Hirsch, which I encourage you to read. He actually speaks about it not only in his commentary on the Chumash, but also in his collected writings, where he has a whole essay about Yaakov and Esav. In any case, Rav Shimshon Hirsch sees indications that something that he saw in his day, something we see in our day, that different people different young people, different young Jews and, and Jewish boys in particular, um, need to be raised in different ways, that not everybody is meant to be a Torah scholar. That's what Rav Hirsch points out. And therefore, one can still be a, an outstanding Jew without being a an introverted uh, scholar, uh, someone whose whole life is one of prayer and study, um, and devotion. There's room for other types of Jews as well, and Rav Shemshon Hirsch indicates that Esav was from his very youth, and we, we know that from, from the womb, Yaakov and Esav had different dispositions. The disposition that Esav had was meant for a different education. Clearly, says Rav Hirsch, that was not recognized, and therefore, Esav came out rebellious and did not see a future for himself within the fold, within the tradition that had been set up by his parents and his grandparents. So that's before the fact. Let's move a little further. Esav has made the decision to, again, go off the path, go off the derech, leave the great actions and and, uh worldview that had been created that would change the world. It was a tremendous opportunity that Esav had to be a patriarch. There were only three others. There only would be three others. He could be one of these four great men, right? Think about the presidents on Mount Rushmore, 
So this is uh, a million times bigger than Mount Rushmore in cultural terms, right? In terms of uh, what people uh, all over the world have been speaking about for uh, certainly for centuries and even for millennia. So here Esau had this opportunity and he squandered it. Uh, again, his parents may have had a role in that. They could have done things differently. However, um, Esau has the responsibility for making the decision. Move forward, fast forward, and one sees that uh, Yitzhak has a plan to bring him back. At least so understands the Sforno that the plan to bring Esau back is to give him a blessing, to give him a blessing, to empower him, to create a strategy in which Yaakov and Esau could, uh, in the end of the story, be partners, one taking on temporal affairs, one taking on spiritual affairs, right? Everything would be suited to each person's disposition, as was originally uh, meant to be in their education, but even though it had not been the case in their education, perhaps the power of Yaakov's, of Yitzhak's blessing, coupled with the divine aid that would come with it, would turn Esav around. Of course, Rivka would have none of it because she was concerned. She was concerned, what if it doesn't work? Giving him the power of the blessing is quite dangerous. So, we don't see that Rivka is necessarily wrong over there. However, fast forward a little further to this week's Parsha, to Parsha V'Yishlach. Here, the rabbis do blame someone for not giving Esav a helping hand. In this case, a very interesting turn of the phrase indicates that Dina, Yaakov's son, Yaakov's daughter, excuse me, uh, she was supposed to be a son, but she became a daughter. It's another story uh, for another time. In any case, Dina was hidden by her father so that she would never meet Esav. Um, in fact, in this week's Parsha, Yaakov and all of his family, well, almost all of his family, meet Esav. Um, his children had never met their uncle. And this was a grand reunion. However, Yaakov was concerned what would be if Esau sees Dina. Well, the rabbis say that what could have been if Esau saw Dina was that he could, in fact, have married her. And lest you think that's a bad thing, the rabbi said that she had the potential to turn Esau completely around so that we could bring ourselves back to the fourth patriarch. Yaakov, like his mother Rivka, was concerned. What if it doesn't work? Indeed, a scary thought. However, the rabbi said, not scary enough in the circumstances to prevent Yaakov from allowing them to meet. And that ended up, by not letting them meet, ended up shutting Esau down completely. He would continue on his evil road, and the rest would be history. Yaakov, says the Midrash, was punished for that. This was no way to act specifically towards someone who had all the background that Esau had. Yaakov's brother 
was born and raised in a house of outstanding righteousness. He had a relationship not only with his parents, he had a relationship with his grandparents, or at least his grandfather, I should say. There is no possibility of simply throwing people away. Again, this is not advice for every young woman looking to find a partner in life, to see someone who comes from a good family and has gone off in a very severe way to the point that they can be compared to an ex-murderer. Clearly, that's asking a bit too much. On the other hand, we have the famous story of Rabbi Akiva's wife, who was born into a noble, wealthy family with outstanding uh, character traits. She could have clearly married anybody she wanted. And the fact is that she was a very religious woman. And the fact that she would choose Rabbi Akiva as he was when she met him is completely similar to this story. Akiva, by the way, was from uh, non-Jewish parents, right? So here, I mean, he was uh, from from con- from converts. So meaning that the the roots of his family came from even further than did Esav, or as it turns out, once Esav became separated from the Jewish family. Even the roots of Rabbi Akiva could have been literally from Esav. However, he at that point was a shepherd, ignorant shepherd, who not only was not a scholar, but hated scholars, spoke very badly about scholars. And yet, Rachel, this outstanding religious woman, saw the potential in Esav. Now, you have to be an outstanding woman yourself, First of all, to see that potential, and secondly, to be able to translate that potential into something outstanding. That was Rachel, and the rabbis say that that was Dina also. And presumably Yaakov knew that the potential was there. Perhaps he was still not willing to take the risk. As a concerned father, one easily understands his concern. But the Midrashim, along the way that we've seen, um, as well as various commentaries, the Sforno and Rav Hirsch, tell us that we cannot afford to simply throw people away. People are extremely valuable to our community, to our people, to the world at large. If someone makes a bad choice, we're not in a position to simply let them go off on their own into the sunset, but we still have to do everything in our possibility to bring them back, even at the cost of taking great risks. That doesn't mean that all risks are justified, but it does mean that serious risk-taking is in order because people are extremely valuable, especially people who have the tools, the background to excel and to be outstanding to begin with. So I don't want to. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 